Hello and welcome to ILTV Zion News and the Blaze Radio Network. I'm Aaron Porras. And I'm Natasha Kircha. Coming up in today's newscast, voting for the next Knesset opens to diplomats around the world. Hezbollah refuses to return to UN Resolution 1701. And Israel marks the 90th anniversary of the 1929 Hebron Massacre. We are just two weeks away from Israeli elections now, the first repeat elections in Israeli history. And that means that campaign season is back in full swing with political ads starting hit the airwaves. But while private Israeli citizens will have to wait until the 17th to cast their vote, Israeli diplomats and emissaries across the globe are turning in their ballots. Ambassador to New Zealand Yitzhak Gerberg kicked things off in the Wellington Embassy, and roughly 5,100 government workers in embassies and consulates worldwide will have between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. local time on Thursday to hit up their own voting stations. The foreign diplomats' sealed ballots are then placed in a second sealed envelope featuring the voter's name and ID number. And finally, to ensure the right count, the votes are sent to Jerusalem, where they'll be kept in a safe until Election Day. As for the private Israeli citizens, according to the law, they must vote on Election Day and in Israel, even if they're living or working abroad. Well, moving on, Iran is doubling down on threats to accelerate its nuclear activities and further breach the 2015 JCPOA. Should Europe fail to come up with a solution to the United States' crippling sanctions by Friday of this week? In a televised address on state TV, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani reiterated that in a most important step, all limitations on our research and development will be lifted from Friday, and Iran will create centrifuge machines that can more quickly enrich uranium. But the solution Tehran is demanding is far from simple. Under Washington sanctions, Iranian oil sales are plummeting, and they're taking much of Iran's economy with them. So senior Iranian officials explained that if the remaining P5 powers of the JCPOA want Iran to return to the deal, then they'll have to either buy Iranian oil valued at $15 billion over four months, or extend a credit line for the exact same amount. And these numbers come specifically from a French draft agreement that many in Europe are prepared to accept. French officials confirm, however, that either way, the United States will have to extend sanctions waivers for any plan to work, especially for participating countries like China, Japan, and India, some of Iran's biggest customers. And that is a tall order considering the state of relations between Tehran and Washington. In fact, though, President Trump says he still believes that anything is possible in terms of meeting with Iran, Tehran has made it clear that unless U.S. sanctions are lifted, however, they won't even consider a meeting with U.S. officials. And meanwhile, the United States has even now announced an increase in sanctions with a $15 million reward to any individual who can disrupt the IRGC's financial operations. If you look at the history of this, Iran never comes back to the negotiating table without diplomatic pressure, uh, diplomatic isolation, economic pressure, or the threat of military force. That's just been the history of it. And so we will continue, as we have today, um, to deny the, the regime revenue, uh, to drive up the costs of its uh, malign behavior. And we think that this creates the right atmosphere that will lead eventually to talks. But that's a decision that the Iranians have to make. In related news, in Lebanon, Israel is reportedly offering Hezbollah a chance to return to the tenets of the 2006 UN Resolution 1701, which ended the Second Lebanon War. And in return, Israel says that it will commit to ending its airstrikes against Hezbollah militants in Syria. But according to Lebanon's Al-Liwa Daily, the Iranian proxy terror group Hezbollah has already rejected the deal. Hezbollah may have made a very unpopular choice, though, as Israel has ramped up its military activity against Iran's recent aggressions in the region. And internally, Hezbollah is now facing growing pressures from the public and the media and other politicians over its recent attacks. 
Critics, including former Lebanese Prime Minister Siniora, who led the country during the 2006 war with Israel, accuse Hezbollah of entangling the country in a mess it doesn't want, adding that a defense strategy is badly needed ahead of expected reprisals. And current Prime Minister Hariri is also now attempting to distance his country from Hezbollah, declaring in an interview that Hezbollah is a regional problem that Lebanon cannot take responsibility for. Then also driving Hezbollah's decline in public opinion is the fact that the Israeli offer was brought to the terror group by Russian intermediaries, including messages from France, Egypt, and the United States, which push for mediation. The United States in particular even added a warning to Lebanon of increased economic sanctions, which could have dire ramifications. Following years of low economic growth, Lebanon faces one of the world's worst debts at 150% of GDP. And just this week, Hariri announced a state of economic emergency with plans to accelerate financial reforms. Now, in addition to pressuring Iran and its proxies directly, Israel's also attempting to respond to Iran's threats through the international arena. That's why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is now on his way to London for a landmark meeting with newly elected Prime Minister Boris Johnson and U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. Now, speaking from the tarmac ahead of his flight, Netanyahu explains that in line with his policy or U.S. policy, now is not the time to hold talks with Iran. Rather, now is the time to increase pressures on Iran. Following his meetings in London, Netanyahu is expected to hop over to Moscow for a similar security discussion opposite President Vladimir Putin. Putin is arguably the most influential foreign voice in the region when it comes to Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and oftentimes even Turkey. And to make time for these trips, however, Netanyahu canceled a scheduled visit to New Delhi, India, leading some back in Israel to question the Israeli premier's motives. For example, sociologist Larissa Romenik of Barilan University says that Netanyahu may have planned his new itinerary as an appeal to Russian-speaking voters. Netanyahu paid a similar visit to Russia just days before elections in April, too. But Remenik also predicts that even if that is Netanyahu's true motive, it will only be effective with the older generation, as on average, younger Russian Israelis no longer identify with the Russian leader. Well, joining us to discuss Netanyahu's trip to London and the conflict with Iran, please welcome Davidi Helmelin, the president of the International Center for Public Diplomacy in Israel. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you. All right. So to start, do you think that Netanyahu will be successful in his meetings in London and then in Russia? According to his achievements during the last decade, we can uh, expect for uh, good achievements. I don't uh, really know and can tell what the result will be in advance. Uh, but I think that uh, the free world and for sure the citizens of Israel can trust Netanyahu that he will... Uh, he will make the efforts to improve the global security versus the evil. And the main goal here is, is of course, um, you know, the getting the UK to label the IRGC as a terror mm -hmm. group, right? Um, like it did with Hezbollah. But is that a possible? Do you think that's going to happen? I don't know. Uh, but uh, one thing uh, uh, should be clear: that the bad guys uh, will continue un uh, unless uh, we will not let them to continue. And uh, at least we should try to stop them. 
and to stay uh, uh, passive and uh, let's say see what will happen this is not the the way we sh when you fight terror you must go head on and uh, and fight them with all the the ways that you can fight them so okay moving a little bit more towards the political aspect of the deal of of this uh, trip of this itinerary do you would you agree that maybe there's some sort of electoral campaign backdrop to his surprise visit to, to Moscow or to London right now? Maybe for Boris Johnson, because any foreign leader who would like to gain some support in his campaign will ask to get a, a photo op with Netanyahu. Netanyahu, unlike the atmosphere maybe in the left wing in Israel, is a once-in-a-lifetime leader. He is the most appreciated leader now in the world. We should remember that. If you go every place, and I go every, almost everywhere, as you know, people just don't stop uh, to glorify him and uh, to say how much they're jealous that we have this kind of uh, leadership in our country. And uh, I think that... Uh, Cynically, I said, I don't think that Boris Johnson invited him for that. But if someone, during, uh, considering the political situation in the UK, if someone can enjoy political benefits of this visit, is Boris Johnson right now. Because Netanyahu don't need this visit to remind us, the Israeli public, uh, that he is a superstar in the political arena, in the global political arena. The history will remember him, hopefully, as the leader who was the pioneer in front of uh, uh, all of us, uh, who tried to stop uh, the, the Iranian uh, military nuclear ability. And uh, this is the most important thing now, not if he has this visit or another one. To stop terror, to stop the uh, Iran nuclear ability, and uh, uh, to demonstrate uh, and to promote sorry, freedom and security for all, this is the mission of Netanyahu in his life, and I think that he, uh, he doesn't waste time. All right, he's, well, he's doing his job. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. Thank you. thank you. Now coming back to elections, legislation allegedly drafted to eliminate voter fraud by installing cameras at polling stations is not seeing the support that drafters expected. The potential bill calls for the installation of cameras in order to create photographic evidence that could catch anyone who might be tampering with the vote or counting machines. But while Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is a strong supporter of the bill, Israel's Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit says the concept violates the law. He claims the legislation is a threat to both, quote, the free exercise of the democratic fundamental right to vote and the constitutional obligation to hold secret and equitable free elections in a proper and reasonable manner. Also, the head of the Central Elections Committee says that passing the bill in under two weeks and trying to implement it immediately would result in chaos on Election Day. But top guns from the Likud party say that they intend on passing the bill through parliament anyway before the September elections, just some 12 days away. Then conversely, Israel Beitenu leader and former defense minister Avigdor Lieberman is calling for cameras to be installed in Arab and ultra-Orthodox communities, which he says are untrustworthy when it comes to honest counting. It's been 90 years since the 1929 massacre of 67 Jews in Hebron, and now several Israeli politicians are calling for Israeli sovereignty in the area. Hebron is a highly controversial city in the West Bank, which is comprised of 200,000 Palestinians and just about 1,000 Israelis. The groups are separated by checkpoints and intensely surveyed by the IDF. 
Israel's Knesset leader Yuli Edelstein visited yesterday and said it was time that visiting the tomb of the patriarchs, which is a holy site there for both, Mus both Muslims and Jews, becomes easier and a more natural thing to do. He says, quote, it's time for the Jewish community in Hebron to grow by the thousands. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Culture Minister Miri Regev support the idea. Just last week, Netanyahu promised sovereignty to all of the West Bank. He also made a nod to the Holocaust when he stated yesterday that Hebron would not be Judenrein, a phrase that Nazis used to talk about places in which Jews were excluded from. Regev said, quote, We have no right to settle in Tel Aviv, Dimona, or Kiryat Shmona if we don't understand the meaning of Hebron. Here now to further discuss the Hebron massacre of 1929, we have Gideon Michnik, CEO of Zabitaski Institute. Thank you so much for coming in today. Good afternoon. So, first of all, you know, can you maybe walk us through what happened in 1929 uh, during the massacre? I was yesterday in Hebron, and I'm talking now about a place that uh, for our, uh, for, uh, our uh, people is history, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, for uh, the people that are living there is a reality. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, 1929, uh, 103 and uh, 133 uh, people were killed in a massacre in all over the country. You can call it pogrom, you can call it riots. I call it the third intifada because the first intifada was in 1920 and the second was in 1921. The idea of uh, and the reasons were that uh, Al-Aqsa is in danger. If it reminds you something from the last years, uh, even nowadays, the, the campaign, the incitement campaign that Al-Aqsa in uh, danger was there in 1929. The names were uh, others. The Hajjamin, uh, Hajjamin, uh, the, the Mufti Hajjamin al-Husseini was the leader of the Muslims. Now we have other leaders, but the hatery. The idea that uh, the Jewish are going to uh, conquer the, uh, uh, the mosque uh, was there, and that was just the excuse, because the hatery was the real reason. So the incitement of, of you know, the Jews are going to take over the mosque and we have to fight back, that's been going on for nearly 100 years more? Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, that tactic and, is just and not going The anywhere. terror is still exists nowadays, because the terror of 1991 uh, was with knives and other uh, terror, tragic murderers. Now uh, the, the uh, idea is uh, uh, different, but the terror is, is still ours. And you should uh, know that uh, the other excuse of uh, uh, the beginning of uh, the riots was separation between women and, uh, um, uh, women and men in the Kotel, that uh, in 1988 started all the idea of conflict on the Kotel. So I'd like to just talk about Hebron and, and why it's so important um, to the Jewish people, because you look at the statistics, you see that there are 200,000 Palestinians living there, just 1,000 Israelis. The government spends an enormous amount of money on security for these 1,000 people uh, to basically continue existing there. Why is it in Israel's interest to, to be doing that? Many units of uh, IDF and the uh, police were there uh, yesterday uh, to uh, secure all the uh, events that uh, were there. Hebron is a symbol, uh, the, um, uh, the place of uh, the holy, uh, not just the holy land, the place of the holy leaders, the holy uh, leaders from the Bible, Avraham. Avraham uh, bought uh, the Machpelah cave in uh, Hebron. He was a, a, a man with a, vis with a vision. Hebron is a symbol, a symbol uh, to our uh, existence in uh, Eretz uh, Israel. And uh, when I was yesterday in uh, Hebron, for me as a Jabotinsky man, it was because Jabotinsky uh, in uh, 1999 was in a conflict with the British. The British that uh, in, 90, uh, in, in the World War I, 
uh, if I called for to found to establish uh, the uh, Jewish uh, regiment uh, in 1999, uh, Jabotinsky was after very much the, uh, after a disappointment from uh, the British that uh, uh, after uh, the Balfour Declaration in 1917 didn't uh, fulfill their promises uh, to, uh, uh, to the Jewish. And uh, in 1999, uh, Jaborkinsky criticized uh, the British and the leaders of uh, the Jewish uh, issue because they, uh, weren't, uh, f they weren't fight against the British about the pro-Arab policy uh, that uh, stopped uh, Aliyah and other uh, actives of uh, uh, Jewish in, uh, in Palestine. Wow. Well... Listen, Hebron obviously is a highly... Uh, um, it's a volatile area. Vol it's a volatile yeah. area, and I think that, you know, um, the anniversary of 90 years since this massacre kind of was able to bring Israelis back to, to the importance of that site, um, you know, from a historical perspective to the Jewish people. So thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you so much. All right, well, today we have a glimpse into the past with two new findings in the archaeological world. One is the excavation of a new layer to the ancient Philistine city of Gath. And the other is the discovery of ancient mosaic tiles that depict fish, birds, and likely baskets of bread, items that are thought to indicate the location of where Jesus Christ performed miracles from the New Testament, such as feeding the multitude. Well, joining us with more details on these findings is Shanna Fold. Now, Shanna, this is really exciting, especially for believers. Is that right? Absolutely, Natasha. And no matter what your faith is, we can all appreciate archaeological findings. Well, absolutely. So tell me first about the new layer of Gath. We already knew this is thought to be the location where David, who later became the king of ancient Judea, uh, had that iconic fight slaying the giant Goliath. Uh, but what's new here? Well, Natasha, this site has been under excavation for 23 years, and evidence shows that Gath may have been a sprawling 123.5 meters, which is twice the size of any city from that time. Wow. So this is now challenging what we thought about the size and breadth of ancient cities from the Philistine era. And the man behind the finding, we've got to credit him for this. His name is Aaron Mayer from Bar Ilan University. And the enormity of this city and the monuments dug up may have led to the legends that the Philistines were giants. Building blocks found were twice as wide as those built later on in history. That's amazing. All right, but, so thank you for that because that's really cool. But moving on to the mosaics, you everyone loves ancient pictures. Yeah, I want to hear about <laughs> the mosaics. He's an artist, guys. That's so. right. So everybody loves art. T tell me about the mosaics because this is just amazing me. Well, this one is going to be particularly interesting for our Christian viewers who have previously thought the miracle in which Jesus multiplies two fish and five loaves of bread to feed thousands took place at the Church of the Multiplication of the Loaves and Fish in Tabga. Now, archaeologists from the University of Haifa are saying this could have happened on the other side of the Sea of the Galilee, where the dig is still ongoing. That excavation is at the Burnt Church. Mm. The mosaics stretch 15 meters across and 10 meters wide. Wow. There are birds, fish, and pictures of 12 baskets filled up with fruit, flowers, and what some think are loaves of bread. Hmm. But that is up for de debate in the archaeological community. Well, perhaps we're going to learn more uh, down mm. the line. Well, there is still another 20% of the dig that wow. hasn't been uncovered yet. All right, so we are definitely going to have more news on this, I think, down Absolutely, the line. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks so much for joining us, Shanna. So what sports will you be watching at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics? Well, you should be on the lookout for Israel's baseball team because the Israel national baseball team has finally got a shot at next year's Olympic Games. And Nittany Manson has the scoop.
Today is a big day for Israeli sports because the Israeli national baseball team is about to fly out to Germany to get the chance to compete in the Olympics. While baseball is not such a widely recognized sport in the Holy Land, it is gaining popularity. And back in 2017, the team shocked everyone by placing sixth at the World Baseball Classic. And now they're ready to make another stand. What does it mean that you're going to be representing Israel? Um, it means a lot, you know. I think that uh, everybody's really excited to uh, go out to the European Championships and, uh, and win it. It was important to my family to be part of this. Um, we as the players made a huge sacrifice to come over here and uh, spend some time and uh, you know do all the legwork to get our paperwork done to be able to play. Um, but it's exciting. And they've only been gaining momentum. In July, Team Israel won two separate tournaments, one in Belgium, where they had a six-game sweep, and another in Lithuania. It's just really important to um, to be able to play for something bigger than you know just baseball. So to be able to play for a country and also for an entire you know entire religion basically um, is just incredibly meaningful, and and uh, we all take that very seriously. But why is this such a big deal? Well, it's actually the first time in 44 years that an Israeli team sport has had the opportunity to make it to the Olympics. Last time was for soccer in 1975. Now, when they arrive in Germany, they'll be facing 12 other European teams, all trying to come out in the top five. The top five will then head to Italy, where they'll play another tournament, and the first place team there will be guaranteed a spot in the Olympics. Second place will still have a shot too, after another round of qualifiers. So today, 18 Israeli baseball players who have all made Aliyah will be heading to Germany to play their hearts out. All right, now the Ain Karim neighborhood in Jerusalem is a beautiful hillside village most famous for its century-old holy sites, or centuries old, to be quite honest. And ILTV's Emmanuel Kadosh took a tour of the town, stopping at some of the most famed locations. Check this out. Often regarded as Jerusalem's most beautiful city, and Karim is comfortably situated at the foot of the Jerusalem hills. Welcome to the beautiful Enkaren. Originally, up until 1948, it was one of the city's suburbs. We know that people have been living here for at least the past 4,000 years. One of the people who were born here, according to Christian tradition, is actually John the Baptist. It used to be a very wealthy, uh, mostly Arabic-speaking village. We also had some Jewish families, we had some Christian families and Muslim families, all living here in the small suburb of Jerusalem. Right across the street, we actually have Mary's Spring, which is the heart of the village. According to the Christian tradition, the Virgin Mary arrived here to visit her cousin Elizabeth. While her cousin was carrying John the Baptist, the Virgin Mary was carrying Jesus. And before she started the great hike to visit her cousin, she stopped here at the heart of the city at the spring to take a sip of water. Right on top of it, the second floor that we have above the spring that is still running up until today, by the way, as you can see, is the mosque. Because for thousands of years, this Enkarim actually used to be a Muslim village. So just as the water is the heart of the village, the mosque was also the heart of the village. So now we're walking up a church in a monastery that is actually called St. John Baharim. Baharim in Hebrew means in the mountains. According to tradition, St. John was born in this very crypt that the church is surrounding. You know, all around the world, when you build a church, you cave a crypt and then you put the holy rock or the holy item, the holy relic in it. In the Holy Land, it's exactly the opposite. You find the holy site and then you surround it with a church. Now we're going to go to one of the nicest couples getaway. Ooh. Finally, this area. It's 
called the Allegra Boutique Hotel. What is the really amazing thing about it is the love story that is hidden behind the walls. So the builder, his name was Francis Jabon, and he was actually an Arab Christian. He was born and raised here in the village of Ankaran. Actually ran into this beautiful, beautiful Jewish Sparty girl. Her name was Allegra Bello. She was coming from a Jewish Spartic Orthodox family, and they actually started to run an affair. Now, both of their families were very against it because she came from a Jewish family, he came from a Christian family, and they actually ran away to wow. the city of Bethlehem. She converted to Christian, and they ended up getting married. And eventually, she was told, listen, I miss Jerusalem so much because we have to go back. And they said, you know what? I'll build you a really nice house in the village of Enkanan. And this is the house that he built for her, out of love. Oh my God. All right, let's take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight you can expect mostly clear skies and a low of 75 or 24 degrees Celsius. Then the weekend will be marked with partly cloudy days and highs of about 87 or 30 degrees Celsius. All right, that's it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.52 shekels to the American dollar. For more news from ILTV, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. You can follow Aaron as well. I'm Natasha Kirchuk. And I'm Aaron Porras. Thank you so much for watching.